Welcome to the Journey Church Houston podcast. The Journey is a church plant in Houston, Texas, inviting people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. Whether you are a skeptic, a spiritual seeker, or a committed follower of Jesus Christ, we pray this podcast engages your heart and your mind with the truth claims of Christianity, why it's believable, and how it makes sense of our lives in the world. And we hope you are inspired to take your next step in your spiritual journey. In this episode, Stephen concludes our series on the journey's core convictions. These are the beliefs we hold most dear because they are essential Christian beliefs. Here, he teaches on the last things, the conclusion and resolution of the story, our hope. What has the Christian church historically and consistently taught about where the history of the universe is heading? And how is that different? How is it truer? How is it better? How is it more beautiful than the secular story? Let's take a listen as Stephen teaches about the journey's core convictions regarding the last things. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see y'all. I hope y'all had an amazing week. Last week, Mace continued our series on our core convictions at the journey with the lesson on the church, what we call ecclesiology. Today, we're continuing this uh, series with a study on last things. But to start our lesson, I have a question I want to start off with. I was hesitating whether or not to ask this question because it may make some of y'all mad with spoilers, but has there ever been a book, a TV show, or movie that you've watched or read where the ending was amazing or that the movie or book or TV show, the ending disappointed you? Controversial. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Not that kind of controversial. Um, Mason and I watched the Lost series oh, yeah. years ago, <laughs> and I we were behind, and so we had heard by the time like you know we got to that point, I mean, we were like a season, maybe two seasons behind that there was a lot of controversy over the end and the end was not good. People were mad. So we get to like the final like few episodes and I'm like, I just don't know how they're supposed to tie all this up this quickly. And then we get to the end and I'm like, well, it wasn't what, what I was expecting, but it wasn't bad. And Mace was like, that wasn't, that wasn't good at all. And I was like, wait, what? And he's like, well, they didn't wrap up everything. Like there's too many loose ends still. And they kind of, kind of got away from them a little bit. And I'm like, I guess I'm just easier to, to please, but I didn't think it was that bad. I don't know. Everybody had hyped it up as this very disappointing thing, but Mace definitely found it very disappointing. So. I'm with Mace. <laughs> point, point of clarification. I, f- I found the last season as a whole disappointing. The last episode wasn't too bad. That was the one that was more controversial, but that was because most people didn't understand. Most people that didn't like it didn't understand, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> the one that came the one that came immediately to my mind was the sixth sense uh which you've had like what 20 years to watch that movie <laughs> so bruce willis you know his character's dead the whole time and that like totally didn't see it coming the first time mind-blowing totally you know changes your perspective on the whole rest of the story mm-hmm. that's an amazing ending that was right. amazing no, ending. yeah <laughs> amazing <laughs> Not just. That was something I was thinking about. Yeah. That was a very surprise. That was a surprise. Any others? I think the movie's called The Guardian, where it's like about national rescue, where like I'm a sucker for a happy ending and then he dies. Mm-hmm. And oh. I was just like so angry. And then they brought out a bonus ending and I'm like, oh, 
just go with the boat in the same day where he actually survives the whole thing and I'm like, okay. I'll go with that. Is that on YouTube? The Guardian? I'm probably... The, the alternate end. It's gotta be. I'm not sure. <laughs> DVD bonus features. Remember those? <laughs> There's a. Of course, I have to bring in Lord of the Rings. That's <laughs> on Jessica. Um, but the uh, the movies actually have a very different ending than the book. In the book, they have the scourging of the Shire, where uh, Sauron, who's still alive, comes and tries to take over the Shire. Uh, whereas in the movies, it he dies in the middle of the movies. They don't have him do that at the end. Probably because the movies it would be extremely long. Um, but but there are some uh, some loose ends in Tolkien's uh, writings that aren't tied up neatly. If you don't have that um, that that ending with the Shire where they 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 come out of their hobbit holes, so to speak. That's a different. I don't want to go into details. But, <laughs> but some would say it was an unsatisfactory ending to the movies, despite uh, their critical acclaim. Um, so thanks for answering. Uh, so today we are wrapping up our series on our core convictions today. We want to be a church that knows what we believe and why we believe it and how it makes sense of our world. And as a church that cares deeply about thinking rightly about God in our world, we want all of our members to understand and affirm some central doctrines or teachings that have been believed, as St. Vincent of Laren says, everywhere in the Bible. We, have arrived at, we arrive at these doctrines through a process called theological method, which Mace taught us in our first lesson in the series. Through studying the Bible, we discover that it's telling us a story, the story of the whole world. Like any story, the Christian story has a setting, a conflict, a plot, a climax, and a resolution. And it has characters, including a protagonist and an antagonist. This story reveals to us certain truths that are central to understanding reality as it really is. It teaches us who God is, who we are, what our problem is, what our solution is, and where we're going. And then we live differently in light of those truths. Today, we're taking a look at our core convictions on last things, or what we call eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times, or the last things. We can say that eschatology is the study of the end of the Christian story, or the resolution of the Christian story. Perhaps you've heard us say before, everyone is a theologian. The same can be said with eschatology. Everyone has an eschatology because we all have a story of the world that we live out of, and every story has an ending. Now, not every ending is a good ending. Some of y'all have mentioned a few bad or controversial endings to stories. They didn't resolve the conflict well, or the ending didn't have as spectacular or satisfying a result as you had hoped. The same is true of false stories of our world. The secular story, for instance, says that one day, either the sun will engulf our planet, or will reach a state of maximum entropy, resulting in a sort of heat death, where no energy is available to fuel life, and all life in the universe will cease to exist. There is no afterlife, our souls do not live on, and even our memory will disappear, as there will be no one to remember it in a world devoid of life. This devastating thought has led some to postulate that there must be an afterlife of some sort. But of what kind, and how does one get there? Well, that remains uncertain. And even other religions can provide no guarantee that you'll get to experience their afterlife. You only live your life the best you can and hope that one day you'll be admitted to whatever lies beyond. 
The eschatology of every other story than the Christian story is simply put, hopeless. But the Christian story is different. In fact, the central word to describe Christian eschatology is hope. Hope in the Christian story isn't wishful thinking. It isn't saying, man, I sure hope that Christ will come back. The Christian story provides a guaranteed, satisfying resolution to the story of reality and this resolution has been the hope of God's people since the first promise of Christ made in the book of Genesis. We rest in that hope. We have confidence in that hope. We have courage in that hope. So what exactly is the resolution to the Christian story? We articulate the resolution to the Christian story in the seventh article of our statement of faith. It says, After his resurrection, Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now the story is building towards its ultimate resolution. Believers eagerly and hopefully await his literal, physical return. When Christ returns, he will bring the kingdom of God to its ultimate fulfillment. Those who have not placed their faith in Christ will be sentenced to their just, eternal punishment for their own ongoing rebellion with Satan and his followers. Those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ will be resurrected to eternal life with God in the new heavens and new earth. All wrongs will be made right and the redeemed will dwell with the Lord in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven forever. Now, there's a lot to this article, so let's start unpacking it. Let's start first by asking ourselves the question, what needs to be resolved in the Christian story? In any story, we find what needs to be resolved by looking at the conflict and the problems brought about by that conflict. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and put humanity in it, to establish a garden kingdom where we would rule over creation in his image. But the conflict entered at the fall, when humanity chose to rebel against our creator. Now, in the Christian story, we need a resolution to these chief problems. Humanity sins against our creator, humanity has earned the wage of death, and humanity has incurred the wrath of God. But not only that, a good resolution doesn't merely stop all the bad things but it results in a greater good. The story is wrapped up by being in a better place than it was when it began. And for the Christian story, that means God's desire to establish a garden kingdom must be fulfilled. But how exactly does that resolution come about? Well, let's look at what our statement of faith says about how this resolution comes about. Our article says, After his resurrection, Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. Now the story is building towards its ultimate resolution. Believers eagerly and hopefully await his literal, physical return. Did you know that there is a close connection between Christmas and eschatology? Early in its history, the church developed a calendar to help us remember the major events in the history of God's work in the world, revolving around Christmas and Easter, the two most important Christian holy days, holidays. During the month before Christmas, the church calendar begins a season called Advent. Advent is typically known for preparing our hearts for Christmas, putting ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites who longed for the coming of their Messiah. We sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and come, thou long-expected Jesus, remembering that God fulfilled his promise of Messiah by sending Jesus to be born on Christmas Day. But what is often forgotten is that Advent has a dual purpose. Those who developed the church calendar didn't want Christians to just commemorate the fact that Jesus came once, they wanted us to see Christ's first coming as evidence that he would fulfill the promise of his second coming. 
In many ways, the church calendar doesn't merely start over at Advent. It is a continuation of the previous year. That's why it's illustrated as a circle. It's a cycle. After Pentecost Sunday, the church is commissioned to live out its calling in the world, fulfilling the mission of God in what is called ordinary time. But after the rigor and trials of our mission on earth, we look forward, longing for our ultimate hope, the return of Jesus our Christ, to fulfill his kingdom. We look forward to the second advent. There are several verses about Jesus' second advent. In fact, we could argue that the whole Bible is pointing us towards Jesus' second advent. But there is one crucial verse or passage that I want us to read today concerning his second advent. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, Luke picks up in the story right before Jesus ascends into heaven. And it says, So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs when the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Notice that the disciples of Jesus fully expected him, now that he was resurrected, to restore the kingdom to Israel. Jesus' answer to them was surprising. Instead of restoring the kingdom right then and there, he gives them the mission to be witnesses of his resurrection to the ends of the earth. And I imagine this troubled the disciples. They likely were standing there perplexed that Jesus had just left them after rising from the grave. But then appears these two men in white clothes and they give the disciples hope. This hope has been the hope of the church from that day on. They say, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. The literal future bodily return of Jesus Christ has been the historic hope of the church. But what exactly will Jesus accomplish at his return? What exactly about his return do we have hope in? Our article on eschatology says, when Christ returns, he will bring the kingdom of God to its ultimate fulfillment. In every good story, there's a heroic moment when the antagonist is finally defeated by the protagonist. The protagonist stands in triumphant victory and the conflict that entered the story is finally undone. There exists such a moment in the Christian story as well. In a prophetic vision to the apostle John during his exile on Patmos, Christ reveals what will happen in the future to give comfort and confidence to Christians living in this time before Christ's second advent. Here's just a snapshot of what Christ revealed in that book to John. Would someone like to read this passage from Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16? Uh, I'll read it. Okay. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Satan will be released from prison, and Sorry, I think that's a different uh, passage than we're reading right now. Oh. Uh, Revelation 19, 11-16. Maybe it's just on the screen right now. Is oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I Christ. saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. 
He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thank you, Ransom. See, on Christmas, the first advent of Jesus was humble and meek. He was born as a baby in a manger. In his second advent, at the end of the Christian story, he comes in all his glory as warrior and king to establish his eternal kingdom. Now, I want to pause and acknowledge that as we study eschatology, there are many dis disagreements about the details of Christ's return among brothers and sisters in Christ. So the chronological details of Christ establishing his kingdom will need to wait for another day when we dive deeper into eschatology. So to take the order, I want you all to take the order of events that we detail here with a grain of salt. This isn't an exact chronology, but for now, we want to establish three key things that will happen when Christ returns. First, Christ will defeat the antagonist of the story and his followers. Our statement says that those who have not placed their faith in Christ will be sentenced to their just eternal punishment for their ongoing rebellion with Satan and his followers. In every good story, the antagonist must be defeated. The conflict began when Satan tempted Eve in the garden, and from then on the whole world was subjected to his rule. While God's providential and universal rule never ceased, Satan now had his own kingdom building on the earth. But God still desired his kingdom, and he would not stop until Satan was defeated and his own king was on the throne, and his kingdom of righteousness covered the whole world. We see the first promise that Satan would be defeated all the way back in Genesis after the fall. God says to Satan in the garden, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Genesis 3.15 This head bruise would prove fatal. In the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, Jesus returns on a white horse to wage war with Satan's dominion. One passage details these events. Now, don't get confused by some of the details. This passage is central to some of the disagreements I mentioned earlier. I'll be here afterwards if you want to ask for more specific questions. But let's read how this passage relates to Jesus conquering Satan and his minions. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. They surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, so that's a lot of exposition. The whole passage is in your notes if you need to take a look at it. But what can we tell from this passage? 
What are some things that you notice about this passage? Ultimate defeat of Satan. Yeah. The judgment of the living and the dead. The judgment of the living and the dead. Yeah. You see things like Satan is that serpent of old. Mm-hmm. You see that call back to Genesis, the serpent in the garden. And Satan's doing his deceiving, just like he did to Eve, but this time with the nations of the world. Satan and his nations that he subjects wage war against the saints, the holy ones of God. Fire comes down from heaven and defeats them. The devil's thrown into the lake of fire. A judgment happens where the dead are judged either by being in the book of life or according to their deeds. And those that are judged based on their deeds are thrown into the lake of fire. And then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire as well. Okay, so that's a lot of stuff going on in this passage. But what it details is dramatic. Jesus comes on a white horse, his robe dipped in blood, a sword coming out of his mouth, and he throws Satan and his followers into the lake of fire. What an epic scene of justice and victory for our Savior. But perhaps there's something about this passage that troubles us. Maybe it should. The fact is that it is not only Satan and demons that get thrown into the lake of fire, but also anyone whose name was not written in the book of life. Anyone who is not redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The existence of the lake of fire is a sobering reality, but it is a just one. I think we all intuitively want justice. We demand it. We crave it. The wicked should not go unpunished. Just last year, a 101-year-old man was arrested in Germany and convicted of over 3,500 accessory to murder charges while working as a guard at a Nazi concentration camp. He lived his entire life peacefully, living out his days after being an accessory to one of, if not the cruelest atrocity the world has ever seen. Is that not disconcerting? Is whatever punishment he faces right now, in jail, probably with only a few years left to live, if that, truly justice? It doesn't sit right with us. We desire justice. Yet, it is when we start to consider where the line of justice is that we feel shivers down our spine. Where does the line of justice stop where someone doesn't deserve to be thrown into the lake of fire? By whose standard do we get to pick? Is it our own? No, the standard of God's kingdom is perfection. For God's kingdom to be the good and beautiful place that he says it is, sin cannot have a place in it. When God makes his grand introduction to Moses in the book of Exodus, he tells Moses exactly who he is. He tells Moses, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth in worship. How can God be both gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, who forgives iniquity and by no means leave the guilty unpunished? The answer lies at the cross. Jesus was our substitute. Those who are found in him, their names are written in the book of life. Because Jesus took our punishment in his death. But those who are not found in him still carry the penalty of their sin. Peter, in his second letter, uh, is comforting the church. The church is crying out for God's justice. They want it to come sooner rather than later. They're ready to see those who have caused them so much suffering to face their punishment. But Peter replies to them, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Second Peter 3, verses 8-9. through 9. As we contemplate God's final judgment, let's not forget, the church is on a mission right now. Before the kingdom arrives, God wants to give everyone an opportunity to receive it. God's desire is not that any should perish. He stands with arms open, ready to accept all who would take the free gift of his son, Jesus. But in the end, for God's garden kingdom to be perfected, it must be sinless. Sin must be defeated, and those who refuse the grace of Jesus are still in their sins. The Christian story cannot be resolved until Satan is defeated. Sin is eradicated, and righteousness dwells forever in the world. The good guy must win. And in the resolution to the Christian story, evil must be eradicated once and for all. All that causes pain and suffering, whether it be Satan, his minions, death, suffering, even other people, are confined to a just eternal punishment. But there is one more enemy that must be defeated, and that is death itself. Now we turn to the believers who will receive the kingdom of God, the blessed hope of the saints, the resurrection. Second, Christ will resurrect the saints. Our article says those who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ will be re resurrected to eternal life with God in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the central hope of the Christian faith. Christ will resurrect his people, the saints, to live in his kingdom forever. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Resurrection is that eternal life. Now, there's a common misconception. Many think that dying and going to heaven is eternal life. But our souls being separated from our bodies uh, in heaven is not eternal life. Not apart from the resurrection. Recall our lesson on humanity a few weeks ago. We are body-soul beings. To live is to be a living, breathing, body-soul being. The problem is that we die. Therefore, we need our bodies to be resurrected and perfected. And the whole story of the Bible points to that need. In the same book as this verse, only a few chapters later, Christ demonstrates that he is the one who fulfills the hope of resurrection to eternal life when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And he explains this in his conversation with Martha. Martha's conversation with Jesus goes like this. She says, Lord, if you had been here, 
my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. John 11, verses 21 through 27. Notice some things about this passage. Martha is aware that there is a resurrection promised on the last day. The promise of resurrection has been the hope of God's people from the beginning. It is not new. In fact, the whole Old Testament promises it. But Jesus identifies this resurrection with his ministry. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Jesus says that resurrection you've heard about, that's me. I am the resurrection. Even if Lazarus is dead, because he believed in me, he will one day live. And those who believe in me will never die again. And Martha says in faith, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God. She believed, and Jesus would prove that he has power over life and death by raising Lazarus from the grave. Jesus' ultimate demonstration of that power and the miracle, the miracle upon which we hinge our own resurrection is Jesus' resurrection from the dead on Easter Sunday. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 15. Apparently, some in the church in Corinth were denying the resurrection of the saints. And Paul ties the resurrection of the saints to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In chapter 15, verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Paul hinges the entire Christian faith on the resurrection of Jesus. It is the resolution that we're waiting for. It is the solving of the conflict. Paul says Christians must be all in on the resurrection. If the Christian story is not true, if Christ has not been raised from the grave, then what are we doing here? We are most to be pitied. We've wasted our lives. There is no afterlife. The dead have perished. We had one life and we wasted it. Oh, but if Christ has been resurrected, now that changes everything. Paul continues on to say, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God, the, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. 
for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 26. The last enemy to be abolished is death. The righteous are raised to eternal life. Satan, sin, and death have been defeated. The moment we have all been waiting for has arrived. Christ will establish his kingdom. The last line in our core conviction statement says, All wrongs will be made right, and the redeemed will dwell with the Lord in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven forever. We know how the story ends. Read with me this passage from scripture. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 6. What do you all notice about this passage? What are some things that stick out to you? If it's relevant, but there will be no seed. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. The restoration of God's dwelling with mm. humanity. Yeah. Before the fall. But in an even more glorious way. Yeah. Just like in the garden. Yeah. But more. Yeah. And better. just completely opposite of the passage before that's only one chapter mm-hmm. earlier where 20 is all fire and destruction yeah and this is a complete restoration mm-hmm. what does God do wipes away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more mourning, no more pain, no more crying, and no more death. Everything sad is coming untrue. Let me read two more passages about the eternal kingdom. This is from Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. I saw no temple in the New Jerusalem, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I want to note that this sounds very different than what we often imagine heaven is like, right? We often think of heaven as an ethereal bliss, where we're in this endless worship service, where we're singing songs to God forever. And while singing songs to God is certainly something we'll be doing in the new heavens and the new earth, that's not all there is to the new earth. It is just that. It is a new earth. We will dwell there in physical, glorified, resurrected bodies. In many ways, it'll be like this earth, but yet without the stain of sin or evil. And the whole world will be living as it was designed to be by God, to the glory of God. Here's the last passage. This is Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Now we've come full circle. This is a return to the Garden Kingdom in Genesis. We started in a garden, ruling and reigning, and now we finished in a better garden, ruling and reigning. God's desire for a kingdom on earth will be fulfilled. The protagonist, Jesus, will win. The world will be filled with the splendor of God, and we will dwell with him on the new heavens and new earth, reigning as his representatives forever and ever. This is the hope of the Christian story, the true, good, and beautiful story of the entire world and it changes everything about our lives. How so? First, we no longer need to fear death. When our friends and loved ones in Christ die, Paul encourages us, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 14. We do not grieve like those who have no hope. Christian funerals are different. We mourn the loss of our friends and family, but we rejoice knowing that they are home with the Lord. And we have no need to fear death ourselves. In his book, On the Incarnation, one of the church fathers, Athanasius, wrote about the effect that the knowledge of the resurrection has on the church. He says, of old, before the divine sojourn of our Savior, all used to weep for those dying as if they were perishing. But since the Savior is raising the body, no longer is death fearsome. But all believers in Christ tread on it as nothing and would rather choose to die than deny their faith in Christ. For they really know that when they die, they are not destroyed, but both live and become incorruptible through the resurrection. Second, we stand steadfast, courageous, and immovable, 
when facing suffering or injustice. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O hell, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Paul also says, For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 through 18. Be steadfast, be immovable. Your toil is not in vain. We have victory in Christ. We know how the story ends. In the end, we win. Third, we live in light of eternity. This life is not all there is, it turns out. It is but a dot on eternity's line. Jesus says himself, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Fourth, we preach the gospel. We invite others to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the story and to join us in the hope of resurrection to eternal life. Jesus says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 14, 14. And lastly, we pray. And not just any prayer, but the prayer of the saints throughout history from the day of Christ's ascension into heaven until the day he returns. The prayer that is the heart cry of the church in the midst of suffering, trials, persecutions, and tragedies. It is the prayer on the mouths of saints who have given their lives for their faith. It is the prayer of those who desire freedom from their own sin and brokenness. It is the prayer that answers all prayers. It is the prayer that finishes the entire Bible. The very end of the Christian story, it says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 22, verse 20. As you leave here today, and as you go in the season of Advent, I want you to consider how the promised return of Jesus and the end of the Christian story impacts the way you live. How do you live differently than those who do not have this hope? Who in your life needs to hear this hope? And how can you live in greater trust of that hope? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that we know how the story ends. We thank you that we get to be with you in the new heavens and the new earth for all eternity. That death does not have the final say. That sin does not have a hold on us, God. That you're making all things new. God, I pray that we would live in light of this, that this would not be in the appendix of our lives, this would not be the on the fringes of our lifestyles, Lord, but that the hope of resurrection would be central to the decisions we make each and every day, that it would be central to the way we live our lives and that people can see us and see that there's something different about us. 
They have to be curious about what makes us so hopeful, so courageous and confident when the world seems so bleak and dark. God, I pray that we would have the courage to share with them the hope that has been us, that we can invite them on the journey to discover that story, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Journey Church Houston podcast. For more resources and to connect with us, including to learn how you can be a part of the journey, visit thejourneyhouston.org.